Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. And click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it is the YouTube channel or Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, Amazon. Uh, any subscription and rating and reviewing of the episodes is always a benefit. And it gets us in from more people, and it's always uh, great to get the feedback. And so feel free to listen to podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts, and uh, just spread the word. It's been a great run for the past year or so, and it's it's been great throughout the past nine years I've been doing the podcast. But like I talked about in the last show... I feel like the podcast has really kind of hit its stride in the past year plus. And so any ears we can get the podcast in front of is beneficial. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. There you will get series like Life Soundtrack for the Easy Riders Raging Bullets here or leaving the collection for all patrons. And that one is hitting some kind of controversial uh, filmmakers. I The most recent one was for Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Find out why that one is kind of leaving the collection. You know, I, I had somebody uh, go, wow, I can't believe you rate Magnolia that low. Well, uh... I, I have my reasons, um, but that is at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. Feel free to subscribe, and that is always a benefit as well. So last episode, um, I was shouting out a lot of the friends and filmmakers that I've had on the podcast over the year, and it occurred to me this week that I actually forgot a couple. I had forgotten... Uh, Jeff Darnan and Eric Sanson, who were on the uh, Lord of the Rings episode with me in 2021. And I apologize, and I'm grateful for their contributions to that episode. It was great to talk to them, and I wanted to make sure that they got recognized. And I also want to recognize a friend of mine, Michael Cottle. Uh, he was on a few of the... Uh, Yahoo commentaries back when we were doing fan commentaries, and he hasn't been on the podcast, but having his input on some of the movies was for those commentaries was really beneficial. So it was great to uh, talk to him about those, and I wanted to give him a shout out as well. This episode is going to be kind of a return to a uh, topic that we talked about last year with the same guest. It is film preservation and uh, releasing classic films. Uh, he was talking about his previous venture, Film Detective, before now he is returning with a new venture for uh, preserving classic cinema called Film Masters, and it is Phil Hopkins, and it was great to talk to him again, and I think we have a really terrific conversation about preserving movies, and in particular, the importance of B-movies, and access to B-movies, 
And I hope you enjoy that conversation. Okay, well, um, I am very pleased to be joined once again by Phil Hopkins, a, a veteran in the film industry as well as a film historian. We talked last year when it came to Film Detective, and this year we are talking about a new venture for him called Film Masters. Uh, Phil, thank you very much for joining me again. Well, thank you for having me back, Brian. So I wanted to, uh, I guess the, the, first thing, um, the first thing I wanted to ask you about Film Masters is what, what, was, it, what was it that brought uh, this project, this, uh, this venture on for you? It was a, a combination of several events. So when I sold Film Detective several years ago, I didn't really see myself getting out of archival retrieval and working with estates and archives and institutions. It was more of taking advantage of an opportunity to scale the company and really kind of get a better distribution platform for classic cinema. Having been away from the industry and in that side of it, in terms of just the business side for the past year, uh, what I've been doing in this year off, I actually went uh, heavily into preserving an archive that a very dear friend of mine had uh, bequeathed to me, who was a resident where I live here in Massachusetts. And he had filmed thousands of feet of eight millimeter film that was mostly local regional events, but he also happened to be almost like a Forrest Gump. He ended up in certain places at the right time where he had his eight millimeter camera and he captured some significant things such as the TV show Bewitched. Uh, they came to Massachusetts about 50 years ago to film in Salem, Mass and where I live close to Gloucester, Massachusetts. And he had this behind the scenes footage of Bewitched with Elizabeth Montgomery. He had behind the scenes footage of the funeral for gorgeous George, the wrestler, when he went to visit his grandmother in California. So what I did was uh, I started working for a preservation initiative with these films and artifacts and ephemera to build an archive that was part of a trust that we established in his name. And then around the same time, my dear friend uh, Wade Williams passed away. And I knew, you know, once I got sort of back into this, my main initiative was to try to retrieve and, and get films that were potentially in harm's way uh, so they wouldn't end up in somebody else's storage locker where they could hoard the films. And it, Because the biggest problem I've had in the past 20 years is I've been that guy who's gone into various film labs or estates or storage lockers way after the fact, when these films have been sitting decaying and deteriorating and then trying to figure out a way to save them, put them in another location and preserve them and then release them back into the marketplace. And ultimately, as you get older, I said to myself, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy where I have so much film I'm going to pass away and then some person's going to end up with a van or a truck or a dumpster. So the initiative that I really wanted to establish with Film Masters was preservation, but more importantly, 
making sure that institutions were available to save these films in conjunction with my help to get them films that were definitely in need of being saved. And, and right now there's two major initiatives that I'm involved with that's tied to that. And ultimately we want to get the films preserved, but we also want them to be seen. We want them to be scanned in 4K and celebrated and shown on, you know, Turner Classic Movies and put out in 4K on Blu-ray and all the things so a younger audience or even any audience can see them. In some cases, these films haven't been seen in any good resolution because no one's bothered to make the effort to go after those types of films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I really, you know, I, I think we talked about last year when I... Uh, talking about a uh, film detective is one of the things I really liked in digging into those uh, the movies that you were that were being put out there was because of the fact that a lot of them were very B movies. A lot of them were movies that you know are not even though even if they have major talent that we all know and love, um, we may not necessarily understand. We might not necessarily be aware of that particular movie of theirs. And so uh, one of the things that I'm noticing in the first few uh, movies that you're planning to bring out when it comes to film masters is it's kind of in the same vein of B-movies or movies or versions of stories that are kind of forgotten. And what is it about um, those particular types of... Uh, movies, those particular types of films that make them so essential for you to preserve? They just never get the attention. So if you look at historically the way that film has not been really well cared for over the years, going back to Nitrate, when so many of the studio films were discarded and put into storage facilities and then because of the compound that you know they're 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 made of, uh, they just imploded. Nitrate is a very challenging film format to be working with because of the liability. You can't be storing nitrate uh, in your basement. Hopefully, you're not. Um, but more more than that, they just film studios never really looked at a motion picture as having a lot of value once it was in its initial exhibition. Back in the 20s and 30s, there was no syndication and certainly no home video or streaming. So a lot of films just became, you know, kind of discarded unless they were made into uh, remakes and those properties continued. Uh, but even then, the originals were kind of really not used or uh, for, they were pretty much forgotten about. And when... Cable TV and certainly home video came out. A lot of films that were owned by studios were, you know, kind of then celebrated. Um, but the B-movie studios and the Poverty Row studios and the independent studios in so many cases had gone out of business or gone into bankruptcy. And then the elements were all over the place. And in many cases, if you look at sort of monogram and producers releasing corporation, Tiffany, all those sort of independent early studios in the poverty row B movie ilk. And then the sort of 
renegade guys like Roger Corman, who came out and went and made films outside of the studio system, a lot of these films were never really well cared for. And they also had versions because many of them were in public domain that were able to come out freely. If anyone had a VHS copy or a 16 millimeter dupe print, they could put it onto a video format. And we became accustomed to seeing some of these films that were independently made in a crappy resolution. And I think that I've certainly been happy to see films that I grew up watching in a very low resolution to, to scan them into 4k, clean them up and then bring out all the best people to talk about it from a contextual way from, you know, why they're important historically and how they fit into the vernacular of genres to me is fascinating and interesting. And it's, it's sort of an area that we, we like um, because it's underserved and we've been doing it for so long. We kind of, you know, really truly believe that uh, this particular category is underserved. A lot of people are doing grindhouse and horror movies and this criterion who go after kind of the quintessential films. We fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, the, the fact of the matter is it's like, I, I love the fact that I've gotten a chance to see some of the movies that you that were put out in Film Detective. And, you know, it's funny because of the fact that I'm, I'm looking at those first four uh, titles that you've got for Film Masters, and it's funny because two of them I first saw watching Mystery Science Theater 3000. And uh, so, you know, one of... What is one of the... Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious because of the fact that, I mean, those movies, you know... Giant Gila Monster and Killer Screws are both like, like you know, like it said, they're very schlocky. They're very much cold items, and you know, obviously, we're familiar with people on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Um, how do you feel about things like Mystery Science Theater three thousand and Rift Tracks that have sometimes gone for more of these B movies and? how do you see them in terms of getting people to, I mean, I don't, now I will say just because of the fact that I've seen something on mystery science theater 3000 or with a rift tracks doesn't mean that I feel like I've seen the movie. I feel like I've seen a commentary on the movie, but not necessarily the movie itself. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, but where do you, you know, it's like, how do you feel about something like Mystery Science Theater in terms of how they've kind of kept some of these movies in the public consciousness in their own way? Oh, it, it's an excellent question. And I, I've been working uh, with the folks, you know, who have been the creators of Mystery Science Theater um, over the years. I remember we did the film Ega which was the Arch Hall Jr. film. And we took that out. When they, when they rebooted Mystery Science Theater, they ended up taking our newly restored 4K Blu-ray that we had just worked on of EGA, and they took it on a roadshow all over the United States. 
And I was fortunate enough to have Joel invite me to the Boston screening with some of my staff and some of the team that worked on the film. And seeing it on the big screen in 4K and restored with a full sold-out packed house in the theater with the new troupe that they had and all of the fun and excitement, it was phenomenal. It, we, it's and, and this type of thing, you know, in terms of campiness and having fun with cinema goes way back. It goes back to Rocky Horror Picture Show on Friday night, midnight screenings with interactive kind of, you know, things with the audience. And I think these types of films lend themselves to that. And it helps the films. It, it sort of makes a younger generation aware of them. I remember when Elvira was on, she would come in and there would be sort of interstitials where she would kind of brag on the film and come up with these little comedy vignettes. So I think that you can't get too precious with a lot of this stuff because they were never intended to be, you know, Citizen Kane. They were made for a certain audience and they were done on the budget. And I think it's great. Now, having said that, there are people that don't like it. I, I know that when Wade Williams and I talked about Mystery Science Theater, he was offended. He thought it was uh, blasphemy and didn't like the riffing, didn't like people making fun of the films because he truly looked at it as an art form, loved it, loved the original, you know, kind of versions and was, it was very against it. And he and I had these long conversations. I would tell him that I felt that what they were doing was helping the films, giving them a new life, giving them a new audience. And they would still appreciate the films just like a younger group of people did when we watched Ego with the Mystery Science Theater uh, screenings that they took all over the country. So I, I think it comes down to, it, it can't be too precious because I don't think the directors and the, and the producers were trying to do something that earth shattering. They were trying to make films on a budget to a certain audience, especially in the horror, sci-fi, low budget film category. So that that's my take on it. Mm -hmm. Um, when you when when you are going about preserving and restoring a movie like Giant Giant Gila Monster or like Killer Screws with modern technology, I mean, obviously you want the film to look as great as possible. You almost you want it to look basically brand new, but are there any pitfalls that come with that when it comes to maybe making it seem too new and maybe going beyond what the film will have been in the 50s? Yeah, so I don't think that a film should be taken advantage of to change the integrity of what it originally looked like. I, I'm not a fan of colorization, for example. Yeah. I, 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 I see that, and to me, it's artificial. It, it's sort of a gimmick. Mm -hmm. And it, it also is somewhat disingenuous to the audience of the film's fans because they're assuming that people can't watch black and white. They, they don't have a attention span. Their eyes glaze over the minute you show a black and white film. So they're, they're kind of taking advantage of technology to bridge it to an audience that they feel won't be engaged with black and white film. I, I, I feel very strongly that 
you know, if it's originally in black and white, it should remain in black and white. Now with the digital tools that are out there, you can take a grainy film and remove all the grain and all of a sudden it looks waxy and it looks video. And I think when HD was first introduced and all the software that you were able to use to improve, and I say that in quotes, a lot of the times the engineers and the, and we were guilty of it early on too, they were using too much of the technology to scrub it to the point where it didn't look like film anymore. And we've gone in the opposite direction and we're just trying to get the original grain to match what it might've looked like theatrically. But at the same time, if there's dirt and dust and debris, which there always is Mm -hmm. and scratches and things, you know, that you would want to not see um, that's typically what you see when a film has gone through a projector numerous times, unless you're working from, an original camera negative. And in that case, you got to hope to God it's in usable condition or you even have one. But no, we've, we've learned a lot in terms of what not to do to sort of um, make sure that you're not taking the integrity of the film and turning it into something artificial. Yeah, I, I remember the whole colorization uh, phase of when Turner was putting, was trying to get some of these, so many of these classic movies out in, Color, and I remember very vividly my mother, um, one of her favorite films is Arsenic and Old Lace. And we were trying to get, I was trying to find for her on VHS. And one of the things that she insisted was it could not be the color, colorized version. It had to be the black and white. And, uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully we have that. And now it's a movie, it's in the Criterion Collection. And um, so, yeah, I, I remember the whole colorization. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely with you. It's like there, there's there's something you know. It's like I I think that's I've been very fortunate to see several contemporary movies in black and white that were like made in black and white. And I I think it's important that we do still have filmmakers who make movies in black and white because of to your point, so that the audience doesn't necessarily feel like everything has to be in color and that way they might be able might be more willing to go back into classic movies and appreciate what the era was i mean i i think you know especially to to your point earlier about talking about some of the gaps that you guys are bridging with the movies that you chose you choose to put out I mean, it's important for, I do think it's important for people who, I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine on a previous episode, it's important for people to step out of the comfort zone of, like, what I consider established classics. Your Casablancas, your Sissy Canes, your Gone with the Winds, the movies that everybody knows, and watching movies that are kind of, off the beaten path to a certain extent and have never had that type of reputation attached to them. I think it is really important to be able to have access to those films. Absolutely. And if you look at the way films are discovered or kind of discovery of genre films or lesser known films, it's, it's a challenge to get someone out of their comfort zone. That's why I'm so thankful 
that Turner Classic Movies has brought back their programmer who I've been working with for nearly two decades. Um, that is the sort of most significant influence in terms of introducing people to films that might not be shown ever on any other terrestrial cable network. Um, and we just recently had a screening of a film we had worked on restoration was that was screened. It was a martial arts film called cripple masters. And it was uh, the, the process of even obtaining the film print uh, was incredible. When we were asked about the film and if we could supply it, I had never even heard of it. And then I went on YouTube and I found a very low res version and my head exploded. I couldn't believe the whole film is incredible because it's two disabled martial arts guys that team up. One has lost his legs. The other guy has lost his arms and they become one entity to go after and have this sort of um, reckoning against the, the people who, you know, kind of did them wrong. And it's a fascinating film, but it was part of their, they had a series on films that centered around people with disabilities. And that was the reason they wanted the film. But my whole sort of goal was, does it exist? And I ended up finding uh, a movie theater in Denmark that had screened in 2018. And I tracked down one of the people that worked at the theater. I asked them about when they programmed it. And they got me in touch with this guy who was originally from Boston, where I'm from. And he had the film print. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. And then I asked him, you know, can we have access to it? And he said, you know, what are you using it for? I explained, you know, we were trying to get it on sort of a, a, a cable deal. And <laughs> it was insane because we found a lab that was over there in Copenhagen and they made the transfer. They sent us back the film. And it, of course, if you, if you know the sort of pedigree of most of those Hong Kong martial arts films that have been around the block, this thing was beat. It was really in bad shape. So if you look at the before and after restoration from when we received the 2K file back from the lab to what we were able to clean up, it, you, you scratch your head and say, this is when technology is really our friend. Mm -hmm. Because if you see something, especially with Grindhouse films, they have that aesthetic. I mean, that, that's sort of part of the whole, I guess, appeal is that they look gritty. But you also don't want to be releasing a Blu-ray with tons of scratches and dirt and debris and emulsion damage. Um, it looks cool aesthetically for a while, but you can't really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if, if you clean it up, it's an entirely different experience. And then, you know, you have to decide, uh, is there a market for this if we do put it out? And we fortunately found out this week after it's screened, there's, the film has a cult following. People are excited about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm letting the cat out of the bag early. You know, that will be one of our 2024 Blu-ray releases. Oh, excellent. Um, that, that is, that is, that is very exciting. And I, you know, it's like, I, I am very much, you know, what is, what is, one of the, one of the questions I have for you is when did you, how did you first go from watching movies that, you know, everybody is kind of familiar with 
to starting to dig deeper and watch more B movies, watch more obscure movies. How was that? Well, I was, for you? I, yeah. I mean, I was a, I was a total uh, geek because I was fortunate enough to have had an uncle when I was growing up, and I was a little kid. You know, I'm talking about five or six years old. That he was the custodian of our 16 millimeter home movie collection, going back to when my grandparents were young and my dad was a little kid. So they used to have Saturday night movies in the summer, and they would put up a uh, screen and, and project the 16 millimeter. And I get to see all of my relatives as a little kid when they were young. I could see my dad when he was my age, you know, back, you know, 40 years ago. And I was fascinated by the information and, and the whole ritual of people gathering and showing films. So when he passed away, I ended up inheriting the collection. And my goal was, you know, how do I keep people interested in, doing this ritual where we project film because they were so tired of seeing the same reels of home movies. And I ended up uh, finding out about 16 millimeter films through going to flea markets and swap meets. And then eventually I, I found out about a publication called the big reel, which you could get at a local newsstand. And it had listings of film collectors who were swapping and selling film prints. So at an early age, I get into that, you know, collecting sort of old Keystone Cop films and um, Charlie Chaplin films and a lot of one-reelers. And then around the same time, there was the Super 8 market where you could go to a department store and get a truncated version of Abbott and Costello, Meet the Wolfman or Godzilla. And those were more for my friends to come over after school and you could project eight millimeter truncated super eight film. And then it got into, you know, the more I started getting into these types of films, I would read um, famous monsters of film land and a little more sort of esoteric publications uh, like midnight marquee and Scarlet street that went into the B films in a, in a very immersive deep way. And that's when I would go to conventions and then places like chiller where you would, get VHS tapes for $30 of a Bela Lugosi monogram film and just be thankful that you could actually see it because this stuff wasn't readily available at your local blockbuster or Hollywood video store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I think, I think mystery science theater did a lot for me as far as getting me more interested in watching B movies. But I mean, even then I was, like still feeling like I was catching up with a lot of the bigger movies. You know, it's only been the past few years where I really feel like I've, you know, especially with, you know, web, especially with streaming sites and turn classic movies and things like Tubi where you, you can go really deep into catalogs that, of, you know, of movies that you wouldn't necessarily see on some of the more prestigious streamers. Um, you know, it's, we're, we're having this conversation at a really significant and to a certain extent, very troubling, uh, time in the film industry. Uh, we are just about to see SAG and WGA go on strike for the first time since 1960 and, uh, or first time on strike together since 1960. 
But earlier this year, um, we also saw uh, a really troubling moment for Turner Classic Movies where it feels like uh, they are in real peril being lost to film fans. And yes, we still have things like the Criterion Collection. We still have a lot of wonderful boutique labels that are putting out tremendous special editions of releases. But, I mean, things like Turner Classic Movies just go very so much deeper, I think, in being able to allow us to appreciate classic movies. And we're even seeing this very is equally troubling moment where studios are starting to remove their own products from streamers. Uh, some for tax write-offs, some for the sake that they don't want paper residuals. Um, I mean, I, I I can certainly imagine your 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 feelings on it, given. Uh, the fact that you're a film historian, but you know, it, it feels like it feels like in a weird way that history is very much repeating itself compared to like the twenties and thirties and the uh considering the significant amount of silent movies we lost over the years. Turner is the most significant place for the world to engage with classic cinema. And it was done so well for so long. And whenever there's a corporation, whenever there's shareholders and people and Wall Street and all the things that have nothing to do with art or passion or the understanding of history, it just comes down to lowest common denominator. Um, We whitewash these sort of things that are beautiful and turn everything into a vanilla sort of world and it's all about data and the people who are making these decisions, they're not film fans. They're not passionate. And, and Turner was all about a audience that loved this stuff to the point where they were fanatics. I go to the Turner classic film festival every year. And it's, you know, it's like that scene in Todd Browning's freaks, you know, one of us, one of you, you, you say that to someone and they nod, they give you like, uh-huh. They completely get the inside, you know, kind of comment what the significance of one of us means. Mm -hmm. That sentiment was so lost on the corporate side of that, you know, then they've evolved into all these different corporations that have been tied to it. When Filmstruck was retired, it made absolutely no sense. I mean, they were going to bridge to a digital platform that was able to bring a younger audience and have it sort of complement what Turner was doing on a cable terrestrial sort of side to grow it. It was going to grow the footprint. Why they took that down makes zero sense. And then when they took it down, the outpouring of anger from everyone that's in the film community, from actors, directors, an audience, they, they didn't listen. And this time when they tried to lay off and they did lay off so many people, fortunately they brought back Charlie Tavish, you know, the head of programming for these types of films who is one of the greatest programmers you could ever have. And he's someone who understands how to get 
things into a proper sort of environment where they're contextualized, there's themes, there's all these fun things and take chances, but still not alienate the audience and have a lot of the tentpole well-known films. That's hard to do. That's really hard to do and do so well consistently so many, you know, years. Um, it's, 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 it saddens me because they, they're, they're very short-sighted, but they're, again, they're attached to these behemoth giant companies. And it, the same thing happened back in the 70s, in the 80s, when you had independent stations that were showing their own version of Turner Classic Movies. And this goes back to, you know, uh, the Million Dollar Movie or the Great Entertainment in Boston, or the Movie Loft, which, you know, I grew up watching. And they were regional hosts that were on all these regional stations that would show classic film. They'd have a host, they'd talk about the film, and they did the same thing with horror movies. You'd have like Svanguli or um, Zachary and all these people who were regional celebrities doing it for a younger audience or just doing it for, you know, kind of a, a different type of... So there was, there was a lot of that stuff. You could turn on the TV, UHF or VHF, and see classic films seven days and seven nights out of the week. For some reason... And we're getting into a, a challenging part of cinema too, where we're becoming so overly sensitive to what you can and what shouldn't and what should be seen or edited out of films or canceled. It's, it's very confusing to me because eventually it's like history. If they stop teaching history in school, you're going to have you know, a whole generation of people that have no idea how to prevent the horrible atrocities from happening again. Um, I equate the same thing to cinema or books and it's short sighted. And I, I don't think streaming can do it by itself. We, you know, there's a huge portion of the population that still subscribe to cable TV and especially an older demographic. If you remove Turner and a lot of people pay for a premium cable subscription and they pay handsomely just to have that one channel, mm -hmm. take it away. You're going to lose Cable's going to die a lot faster. Yeah. Before we uh, wrap up, I'm, I'm sure you could probably list off a dozen films for my, for this question. What are some of the films that mean the most to you that you would like people to see? Great question. There's, it's a hard one to answer. Yeah. And it depends on when, you, when, when, they, I mean, if if they are just sort of average person, you're sitting at a bar and they say, what do you do? And I would work on old movies. Oh, you know, what movies do you like? I would make a different recommendation to that person than someone like you, who's, you know, a cinephile, who's completely geeking out with me. Um, I, I personally, and, and it, it's such a cliche, when I was a kid when I was probably 13, 14 years old, It's a Wonderful Life was shown often because mm -hmm. back then it was still able to be in the public domain. So you could watch that on PBS, any, any station around Christmas time, 24 seven. And that was a film that kind of had a amazing history where it didn't do that well at the box office. And only because of its public domain status did it become the event that it is now where Aaron Spelling went and found a way to 
enforce copyright and make it only shown once or twice a year. But I think that film is significant uh, for many reasons. It's um, the arc in the film from despair and sort of wartime and someone's personal you know, grief and then kind of the fall and recovery in the cinematography from Frank Capra and the fact that he made it, you know, independently, you know, he had Liberty pictures. Uh, there's so much about that film that I still watch it and see something new and different. That to me is an incredible film for anyone. I think everyone should be familiar with it and, and they probably are. Um, another film that is near and dear to me is uh, Nut of the Hunter. I think it's beautiful it's got so much um, in terms of the aesthetic and the way it was shot and filmed and the acting. Uh, and of course, it's one of the films because it was the film that I went to my uh, first date with my wife. And we, I realized if she, if she goes on a second date with me after this film, she's a keeper. And, and of course, you know. <laughs> so those are two films that I, I really appreciate and like. And then if you get into... Um, some other films that are a little more um, lesser known. Um, there's a film called The Uninvited, and that is a creepy mystery film uh, that I always read about, and it wasn't until years later. There are two films that I loved um, as a kid that I get to see finally after reading about them. There was the film Dead of Night, and the film The Uninvited. Um, they were just atmospheric films and really beautiful um, in the cinematography and the storylines. And then, of course, one of the films that Film Detective put out several years ago, um, The Spiritualist, which is also known as The Amazing Mr. X, the Turin Bay film. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is phenomenal. Very underappreciated uh, film. A little bit of a mini masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, Phil, thank you very much for giving me your time today. It was really great to talk to you. Uh, before we wrap up, though, where can people find out more about Film Masters? Filmmasters.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter, which will be coming out probably in a few months. And then, of course, we have a YouTube channel, Film Masters TV, and Twitter and all your typical social media feeds. I'd like to thank Phil for joining me once again. And I, I, I think I'm like, I told him after the episode, I, I do think I want to have him on to just talk about movies in the same way that I talked to uh, a lot of people in, in, in the podcast about movies. And I, I think that would be really great to have him on this, uh, on this rotation. And so hopefully we'll work on that in the future. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. It's been a weird July in the sense that I've done two episodes I did not necessarily intend to expect to do, but I'm grateful that I've had a chance to do them. Uh, the Personal Reflections episode uh, malocked me to give a shout-out to the people who have been on the podcast, as well as to give my some of my recommendations. And uh, we've, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. We have a roundtable discussion of probably the greatest film composer who ever has taken the podium for film score. We've got 
a uh, discussion on one of the great masters of thrillers. We've got a great character actor appreciation, as well as one of the most underrated films by one of modern films' uh, great artists. And that should all be coming by the end of the uh, summer. And thank you very much for uh, listening. Once again, check us out at patreon.com backslash wherever you listen to podcasts or even just www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank mm-hmm. you.